Hello everyone and welcome to the Track and Field Performance Podcast, a platform dedicated to providing expert insights from coaches and practitioners who work in the sport of track and field. I'm your host, Colin Burke. I'm a long jumper from Sligo, Ireland, who currently works in the field of higher education as a career coach, as well as being a volunteer assistant on the University of Louisiana Monroe's track and field team. I hope that this podcast serves as a useful resource for you and your athletes, enabling them to improve track and field performance. Now, without further ado, let's get started with today's episode and bring forth our guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is episode number three now of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. It seems such a time ago when I'd done episode one, but in theory, it's only been a couple of weeks. And since then, I hope you had a lovely Christmas break and enjoyed that quality time with your loved ones. Or for those who couldn't do so, I hope that you were surrounded with people that mean a lot to you. Starting off the new year, trying to improve oneself, whether you're an athlete or a coach, if that's what's brought you here, then I hope that this episode delivers on its promise because I am very, very fortunate to be joined by today USC's assistant track and field coach, Coach Nick Newman. Nick, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. If you'd like to give the listeners a little bit of an introduction to who you are and exactly what you do to get started with today, uh, that would be really helpful. Sure. Yeah. I'm the current uh, jumps and multis coach and recruiting coordinator at USC in Southern California. Um, this is, I'm going into my second year at USC. Previous, I was at UC Berkeley up in uh, Northern California for three years. And then previous to that was, um, I was working in private sport performance um, for varying sports, different ages, youth sports. And uh, I, you know, I had my own jumps group, had some private athletes. And yeah, I've been in this field since, um, in the sports science field since about 98, when I was 17 or so. And I've been in track and field in the track world now since about 2002 2003 so I started as a as a student of sports science was a basketball player um didn't even consider track and field until I was about 18 19 years old I was pretty late in the sport um ended up jumping um relatively decent went to Manhattan College jumped 754 there and then just started coaching myself for the next uh pretty much the next six to seven years and experimenting with different things that I was learning and um, ended up jumping 780. I uh, had a couple of meets over 770. And uh, yeah, you know, I kind of, I just, I became a coach through my own development, really. I just, my own experimentation and trial and error, it uh, sort of lit, lit a fire for me and I wanted to coach. And I was lucky enough to have a couple of good athletes that I was working with along the way. And, and that sort of sparked a real love for coaching and, um, I had a long sort of coach development through youth sports, which, you know, it's not the glamour of coaching, but it's certainly the the, the foundation. I think a lot of coaches really uh, miss out on that because they want to get straight to college and an elite level. And it's, you know, I, I didn't have the opportunity to go to elite level early. So I was kind of forced on working with youth, but I mean, I, I, there's no more valuable experience and education than coaching kids. So I did that for about seven years and I uh, was working with some, some really good coaches at the time. And, and yeah, I was lucky enough in uh, 2016 to join UC Berkeley and make my way in the NCA. And now I'm four years later, five years later, I'm here at USC. So. 
Yeah, it's quite a background stemming right from your early ages in basketball, making your way through the athletic um, endeavor that you had to jump as far as you could and kind of using that inner coach from a very early age. And I think that's something that I feel I pride myself on as well. And although I've not really tested different methods, I've always had a coach, but I've always been very fascinated by the training concepts that uh, people have to employ to kind of fit what's right for you or develop a sense of self that you can navigate through your own kind of development. And I think that's a very fundamental, important part of being an athlete, regardless if you have coaching guidance or not. And I was fortunate enough that in 2013, I stumbled across your YouTube channel, a place where you were posting training videos regularly. And I was someone who at that time would always post jump videos, uh, now converted kind of a little bit more in the 21st century with uh, Instagram being the popular social media platform for all things um, workout related. But it's funny, I, I then got a copy of your book back in 2015, 2016. So for those listeners, uh, Nick has also wrote uh, the Horizontal Jumps uh, book that many people have seen on their uh, track and field manuals and so on. So I think it's been a useful tool for me to learn the fundamentals of jumps training and and the variety of ways it can be done. There's obviously no one way to skin a cat, but I think the US philosophy, uh, European philosophies and, and so on are, are vastly different. And I've had conversations with many European jumpers that, you know, uh, have very w- different ways of preparing for the given season. You particularly have uh, strength training. You deem it as quite a big component of your overall philosophy. And that's something that I've always found very interesting. And uh, I wanted to delve a little bit more uh, deeply into that today. And so before we get specific, uh, maybe address the general uh, principles that you feel are necessary for horizontal jumps performance development. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we can look at it in, in sort of a few different areas. Um, I think the, the general overview of characteristics needed, I mean, athletes need to be able to sprint uh, efficiently and at high velocity. Uh, strength is a considerable factor to all aspects of performance, which, you know, we'll talk about more later. Um, the elastic qualities of an athlete is absolutely vital, right? So reactive power, um, being able to utilize that through sprinting and taking off, um, and those are slightly different. Um, you know, the overall is, you know, the ability to produce high amounts of force in, you know, very short time frames, right? And everybody has a slightly different variation of, uh, or, or, you know, varying degree of that quality. Um, so, you know, things that kind of help with that is, range of motion. So, you know, anthropometric measurements of, of, of athletes, you know, how kind of limb length, um, tendon length, you know, uh, fiber type characteristics are obviously a huge part of, of genetic characteristics. Um, their suitability of nervous system, neuromuscular efficiency, those are kind of genetic characteristics that, you know, you, they're kind of the gold standard of of being a jumper. You, you want your athlete to have uh, high levels of all of that. Um, and, and I think what's kind of really fascinating about coaching and um, certainly keeps us up at night trying to figure out what's best for our athletes is everybody has varying degrees of those qualities. Um, but as a jumper, I mean, that's, that's the standard. That's what you want. That's going to determine your ceiling. And then it's, it's up to us and, and, you know, program design and coaching to figure out how to best, um, manifest those characteristics so 
you know, the, the basic, those are the basic markers of potential, you know, basic characteristics that you're looking for. Um, the demands of the jumping events obviously go hand in hand with those qualities, right? So the ability to produce uh, force very quickly, like I said, that's largely determined by your reactive ability. Um, having high amounts of impact tolerance, so eccentric strength, you know, internal and external strength. And that's one of the reasons why max strength is so key, right? So are you able to minimize knee bend at the point of impact when you take off, right? That's a huge determining factor for reactive ability. Um, obviously, coordination and timing at high velocities, hugely important, especially in um, events with high, high levels of coordination, high jump, triple jump. Uh, long jump is you know, much more of a roar event, but uh, still internal coordination, you know, is huge, uh, you know, in terms of uh, all three of those events. So, you know, that's kind of two aspects. Uh, and then you've got the training requirements, right? So the ability to withstand all of the necessary training components uh, over a long term, long period of time, you know, max strength development, plyometric work, all the, all the things that are incorporated in a training program is a demand of the event. Um, and then you can look at it from a psychological perspective too, right? So, you know, how resilient a particular athlete is, you know, what kind of, kind of intent, what kind of uh, percentage of their max effort are they able to get? And, and, you know, that's a topic that not many people talk about, but there are a lot of athletes that are relatively talented that are just not able to, they're not able to get themselves to that hundred percent commitment. Um, in, in terms of training, in terms of the actual act of taking off at full speed. Um, so, you know, you look at that, are they, are they a, an aggressive type of person? Um, and, and if they are, are they able to utilize that, you know, within their event? Um, do they take risk? Are they, are they willing to take certain risks? What are their confidence, you know, confidence level, um, their perseverance, all these things are, are qualities that can relate highly to jump performance and, um, you know, as a coach, we should harness those qualities. We, we obviously look for them, but then we try to develop them if, if, you know, certain athletes struggle in areas. So, yeah, I mean, just kind of, that's kind of a brief, a brief overview of the things that I look for. And if an athlete has high levels of all of those, um, then you're, you know, you're, you're, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to have a great uh, opportunity to jump far and to, to, you know, have success with the athlete. Yeah, wealth of knowledge there. We can cut the call there if you want. And I think people would have a very good understanding of what it takes to be an elite level jumper. Now, how to craft that into a program and actually coach it. Different story altogether, very process oriented. And you, you alluded to a number of factors that where max strength would play a role in their ability to kind of uh, absorb force or generate force, what have you. Um, Give me an idea to how, I guess, max strength would play a role, not only from a jumping standpoint, but also we know it starts and uh, plays a factor in acceleration development and everything. And then essentially how you integrate that in the program early on and how it essentially corresponds to the other more specific qualities as, or, or lends its hand to those um, as you progress throughout the fall. Yeah, I mean... Power is, is, you know, power includes the ability to generate an impulse and then the rate at which you can generate that impulse, right? So there's two qualities right there. One's velocity-based and one's strength-based. So 
the idea is that you, you want the biggest possible impulse. You want to increase the potential of that impulse, the magnitude of that impulse, right? If you can do that, then there's a chance, depending on genetic ceilings and, and training and planning, that you can generate that impulse and, and utilize it quicker, right? Faster over time with shorter, shorter contraction speeds and times and, uh, or faster contraction speeds, shorter times and, and uh, ground contact times and things like that. So max strength is the foundation of power. It's, it's the thing that improves power output quicker than anything. Okay, reactive strength, reactive power, whatever you want to call it. That's the hardest quality to develop. Okay, so when you have an athlete that has an abundance of reactive power, elastic qualities, you, 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 thank, you thank the heavens, right? That's, that's the, the key component of, of having a high ceiling in the jumps. It's trainable for the ones that have the highest level of natural talent, natural elastic quality, but it's, it's minimally trainable in those that don't. So then there's a common denominator for a lot of these, a lot of these athletes that is very trainable and that's strength. Okay. I haven't really found many athletes that are not able to improve their max strength significantly. Well, there's a lot of people that say, Oh, you know, too much max strength development will hurt elastic qualities. Well, those that have high levels of elastic qualities, can improve elastic qualities very, very easily, right? Because that's their driver. That's what makes their body perform. They have such gifts that, you know, almost all aspects of training will help that quality. Those that don't have a lot of elastic quality, yeah, I mean, you've got to prioritize what their driver is, which, you know, for a lot of those non-elastic people, it is going to be slower speed velocity, slower speed force, um, and then max strength is a huge component of that, right? So, you know, I've had athletes that have, have had are off the charts in terms of reactive ability that have improved max strength considerably and improved performance. And then I've had athletes that do not have a lot of reactive ability, have improved max strength and have improved performance. I've never seen a max, I've never seen max strength development hurt an athlete's performance. No, I've never seen it. And it's just, it just go it just, it's a pretty basic concept that I just, I don't really understand why a lot of coaches don't get. I mean, you improve the ability to produce a, an impulse when you are trying to execute, you know, a takeoff or, or a start in, in an acceleration, for example. When that foundation is there, it, it's not overly difficult to increase the rate that they can improve that force. Now, again, they are going to be stuck genetically. Their ceiling is, is what it is. Okay, but there are two ways to improve power. It's not, there's not just one way. There's two ways, right? You know, there's multiple ways, but there's two primary factors, right? En enlarge the impulse, make it faster, right? So um, it's just a huge foundation. I mean, it, it's um, not to mention other aspects, obviously, just structural stability at takeoff, right? In order to have good elastic qualities, there's an element of stability that happens at plant which is massively determined by max strength, right? Um, having good reactive qualities is largely determined by how quick the coupling phase is when you plant to take off, right? From eccentric to concentric. Well, the ability to withstand that at higher speeds is going to be determined by 
max strength, largely, right? Not, not completely, but largely. And then, you know, the higher levels of performance that you get to in a sport, um, max strength, um, you know, the direct impact of max strengths may, may decrease a little bit, but that, but that's just normal, right? That's, that's specificity right there, right? The higher level you get, the closer you get to elite, super elite world-class performance, you know, the, the main quality is going to be the, 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 um, what, what happens in that time frame at takeoff or, you know, in a sprint or whatever. Right. So what we do max, you know, in terms of max strength is we just develop that foundation. We allow them to become as explosive and, and, and generate as bigger impulse as possible. And then the whole program together works uh, to enable them to, pro- to, to express that within their event. So, I mean, it's a huge part of what we do, but I think I talk about it quite a bit and I, I, I post videos of, of, you know, a lot of weight on certain athletes, but I think people kind of mis, misinterpret, um, you know, maybe how I feel about it. We, we've, we're in the weight room for no more than three hours a week during the fall and two hours a week during the spring. That's it. It's just three one-hour sessions. It's not like we – I think a lot of people think feel like I'm in the weight room all the time, you know, lifting heavy every day. It's like a throws program. It's – no, it, it, you know, the whole program works together. Max strength is the driving force for a lot of athletes. It's not the driving force for all athletes. Right? Like I said, it's about identifying what makes that athlete great. Okay, the, the 230 high jumper that I have right now, I know you mentioned horizontal jumps, but I'll just talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, 230 kid I have right now, I got him at 227 and jumped 230 indoors and, and was ready to go 233 at nationals. You know, we all, all indications point to that, but we didn't have nationals. Um, that kid, when I got here, was, uh, could barely squat to parallel 200 pounds. Not because he couldn't squat more than 200 pounds but because he'd never done it. And of course there's a learn a learning aspect to strength too. Right. So it's his, his nervous system was not used to that. Right. You're not going to, you're not going to show me a 227 high jumper that isn't strong. Right. They're, they're all very, very strong right. in, in what they do. Right. But he had such a limited experience with max strength, such a limited, um, um, foundation. He, he, you know, he just did not lift heavy for two years. And, you know, when I got that job, a lot of people were like, ah, oh, man, you, you got to be careful with, with that kid, right? Like, don't, he's really good. You don't, you, you're going to mess him up if you put him sure, on that sure. weight, if you put him on that weight program. And you know, I kind of smiled because you get there, you, you assess the athlete, you, you look at all of their qualities across the board. And I have a pretty comprehensive testing program that I, that I use. And you see, you know, where are they off the chart? Where are they struggling? What's their previous experience? Um, you know, and then you kind of design the program around that. So I looked at him and I said, well, you know, this kid's got a 42 inch vertical jump. He's a uh, high jump, you know, he's jumped jump 227. Um, his bounding ability is actually world-class as well back then, you know, and, but yet he had no experience in a weight room, couldn't squat anything. His clean was, you know, was terrible. All, all these, you know, he couldn't do a step back lunge with any weight. Uh, it was very uncomfortable in those, those positions. And, um, he had very poor acceleration ability and he's, you know, pretty slow. 
Now he's a high jumper, so people will ask not that important, but it is. It's, it really is important. If you're going to jump higher than 235, you've got to have a lot of speed and uh, you have to be able to accelerate, right? And you have to, um, you have to be able to jump at that speed, right? Which means you have to have a crazy amount of eccentric ability at takeoff. A great way to develop eccentric ability is to improve max strength, improve comfortability with heavy load, knowing that that person is driven by his elastic qualities, which means they are never going to disappear, right? He's, that is what his MO is. That's what makes him great, right? So you're never going to have to worry about that quality because that's, what it, that's his genetic driver, right? So I developed his, his weaker areas at the same time emphasizing his strengths. Of course. The, the main philosophy of the yes. whole system. Improve weaknesses, you emphasize strength, meaning you emphasize their main qualities. And then the two merge together when, you know, specificity and, 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 and the program periodizes and kind of, you know, develops into their events, you know, more specific training, et cetera. And right before he jumped 230, um, his squat was over 300. His clean had, had improved 60, 60 or 70 pounds. And, you know, his, this kid's uh, you know, 160 pounds, 6'3". And so, you know, he's never going to be a, a, a monster squatter, right? But it's, you know, again, it's relative to the event and it's relative to his his Of course, where he game. was. And what happens when the parallel squat improves, the quarter squat improves, right? The ability to maintain stiffness at takeoff improves. All of those things mean that his elastic output elevates, it all works together. And, you know, he became, uh, became a 230 guy with undoubtedly, you know, 236, 237 potential relatively soon and improved in every area across the board, right? So his standing bounds started at 17 meters, which is pretty damn good, right? Yeah. But now, but now it's at 18 meters. His max bounds went from 21 meters, which is good. Now he's at 2250. Right, his um, his vertical jump, depth jump, reactive ability went from forty to he just went forty to eight. So you monitor all of these things, and I'm not saying max strength is the reason for that. Of course, but max strength is a reason for that. Yes, it's complemented right? the other elements, and you've assessed that across your battery, and, and, it, and it it's there. constantly being assessed. Right, it's constant. Now I've never seen max strength hurt other qualities, but. Obviously, if, if it happens, then I'm, I'm assessing for that. Um, and then just, you know, across the board, a, a female high jumper, right, jumps 5'8", five, 5'7", five, did that back in high school, has been stuck there for three years. Couldn't be more of a contrast from, from, from that particular kid. Struggles with most things athletically, um, athletic, uh, most things athletic minus the, the high jump, but did have tremendous, uh, you know, kind of physique and, and, and body for the high jump, which is very, very significant, more so than most things uh, in that particular event, you know, how tall, yeah. light, long hip, you know, high hips. Um, same thing, had no max strength background, was, was you know, just, just 
Now, but this particular person is never going to generate force quickly, right? The genetic ceiling is just not there for this, for, for that. However, they can improve the impulse. They can increase their ability to generate force, right? Well, the time frames that they need to generate force at takeoff is relative, is relative to their abilities and relative to their approach. So it doesn't need to be as quick as somebody else. Okay, so, okay, if it's not going to be quick, they're not going to be able to really utilize velocity on the approach because they don't have that, then how do we get them to jump higher? You have to increase the impulse, right? You have to increase right. the ability to apply force to the ground, irrelevant of the time frame it takes. It really doesn't matter at that point. So same type of thing, same type of philosophy, same type of structure. Squat, clean, pull, step back lunge. Significant improvements. Here, in this particular regard, we're emphasizing what could be a strength. Two things. This particular person can get stronger significantly. We know that. They also have a tremendous um, uh, physique attributes related, related to the high jump, right? So we got we to gotta maintain, you know, we got to keep it really light, you know, all these things. Technique is a separate discussion. Optimize her approach to be able to uh, utilize the time frame that she needs to apply force, which for this particular athlete was a lot longer than my 230 high jumper, right? And she ended up going 5'11". And it was, it was, you know, it was just a great rise. Six months of training nonstop. We, we really f emphasized her, her strength ability. Um, but we still worked on her reactive ability, yeah. right? So like another coach would say, well, the priority in the high jump and the long jump and the triple jump is elastic strength. Of course it is, right? But not everybody has the ability to have a great uh, uh, level of elastic strength, right? Yes. Elastic load. So if you only emphasize the pro that priority for all athletes across the board, you're going to get some that respond really well and you're going to get others that don't respond much at all, right? Of course. So again, this goes back to the, to the very thing that you do or I do when I, when I have a new athlete. You have to figure out what their drivers are, what makes them good, and then arrange the, the structure of the program, the ratio of the training components needs to be structured for that individual. Yes. And it's, it's small, like, subtle nuances that, that make individualized programs. Yeah. If you're not changing the structure of the system – you're just uh, individualizing certain things. For example, that particular athlete, the greatest response that she got from anything in training was high jumping. She struggled to bound. She struggled to sprint. She did not express a lot of force during those activities, but she was able to high jump. She was very resilient to the high jump, and that was the one thing that she was able to do very well. So she high jumped a lot more than others. My 230 kid, because he expressed great force during bounding, during box jumps, he's very aggressive when he sprints. You know, struggled in terms of speed, but he wanted to race. He yeah. wanted to he wanted to be with the, the horizontal jumpers. His bounding was phenomenal off the charts, best in the group. He did not high jump that much. Why? Because we are we're we're expressing key qualities in other areas of the program, right? 
So that was one aspect of individual individuality, you know, him compared to the other one. She right. high jumped a lot. He did not. Um, little things like that kind of make make the program individualized and 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 focuses on what what drives that particular individual. Um, and, and you know, it's obviously with great success, and the same the same type of thing happens with with uh, with the horizontal jumps, right? And and a lot of this is determined by goals, you know, where their ceiling might be. Um, you know, high jump is a little different. There are more ways to do it if you have the right body. Uh, long jump is a little is a little different, right? You're not jumping eight meters if you're if you have two tenths of a second contact at the board. It's not going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So, but you could jump. You know, you could jump relatively far for the individual, right? But you're always trying to minimize ground contact time, of course, and improve force. That's always the goal, but it's always relative. And I've just gone off on some crazy tangent, but so uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> that's I don't think so at all. I think what's brilliant about that is, and I think this is important to consider. And you did mention this somewhere: is that you know, max strength is part of the development, and yeah, identifying the drivers and so on. But at no point is it the primary component that you know, all others do not exist. And I think that's got probably muddled up somewhere along the lines. And, you know, people will do that purposely to kind of help comfort themselves for the mistakes they've made or the impediments that it's had on their own program. And and that's all well and good. But I certainly, you know, just as my own journey as a long jumper have, have seen against, for example, I look at myself and I go, you could give me all the drop jumps in the world and try make me more elastic, but I'm not an elastic athlete. I'm somewhat strong. I'm somewhat elastic in across the board. And for me, max strength has improved my performance as my weight room numbers have gone up as I've been able to exert more force and, you know, get more neural drive and so on. I've been able to express the things that I can do relatively well and get better. And that's the funny thing is that at no point was max strength, the product of the entire program, but rather when I was in the gym, like I was doing my best to improve week on week. And if it was a three by three deep squat, like I'm trying to push the envelope, like if it's on a Friday, you know, and we've done our specific tasks on the runway or what have you, it's never people get muddled up is that, you know, just by saying that it helps means that it's the primary component. It's not, but it complements the other aspects. And as a, yeah, you're going to try address the timing of the contact as you progress throughout the winter, as you like to talk about. And I, I do enjoy your concepts and uh, training programs you post on Twitter. For example, you will start with five bounds throughout the, the fall, but then progress to the running five bounds with a short run in and then progress outwards so that you can monitor that, the conversion of power or max strength is translating to the more velocity based tasks that you're looking to correlate to the actual full jump. And that's probably the component that um, people don't want to like uh, acknowledge that you, you currently state is that it's not about pure max strength throughout, but rather that it allows for the greater demands to be met, as you said, absorbing all that eccentric force and, and controlling, um, the body at high speed. So, and I think you, you really gave some good case studies there with the two different athletes you have, albeit not horizontal jumpers, not really. Uh, so it doesn't really matter. I would say in the sense of they had two variety 
or varying qualities amongst what made them great. And, you know, you tailored accordingly. And it's funny, I, I want to actually expand on that a little bit more. So you, you were alluding to the high jumper who got a lot of benefit from high jumping, you know, often versus she wasn't able to express the same output uh, in those other tasks that you'd ideally like them to be more well-rounded at. Would you ever add like um, weighted vests or how would you essentially overload those to kind of create more force or emphasize the strength element in, in those tasks or would you at all? That's just a question I kind of have. I was, it was curious about. Yeah. So, you know, force velocity curve, right? The, you know, the spectrum, you know, eccentrics, very slow all the way through to assisted, right? So slow velocity, tremendous amounts of force, very high velocity, less, you know, that whole spectrum is an emphasis throughout the whole program, right? So you're gradually, you're, you know, you're lifting uh, relatively high levels of weight in the weight room, all relative to the individual. You're, you're emphasizing uh, max strength work in the weight room. You're doing eccentric work, which is, a, you know, obviously above, you know, concentric strength. You're doing, um, um, you know, so slow level, slow force development in the weight room, right? Gradually, all of those things start to basically transfer to the track, right? So you can we, heavy sled sprints in the weight room. Um, sorry, heavy sled sprints on the track, heavy accelerations. That's a that's a, an aspect of max strength, right? But it's slightly faster than the max strength expression that you do in the weight room. Of course, um, low level plyometrics is relatively low velocity elastic. Eccentric is the highest velocity of elastic. Um, there's a spectrum there and you just work across it gradually, right? Standing five bounds is an ala horizontal elastic uh, uh, activity, but it's slower in terms of um, stretch reflex than it is if you add two and then four and then six and then eight. The requirement of eccentric abilities increases as you add velocity, right? And in some athletes, and again, this is, this is what we look for, right? The goal is the more velocity you add, it enhances the elastic ability. However, obviously there are a lot of athletes that when you add a certain amount of velocity, you, it, it hurts elastic qualities, right? And that is in large part because they're not strong enough to handle that because they, they, they buckle, they, they, there's too much uh, knee bends, their eccentric ability does not help. Um, some technical issues as well can, can come into play. But when you, when you take your, your heavy work in the weight room and then you gradually just implement more specific activities in terms of movement and complexity, slightly, slightly faster, slightly faster, slightly faster. So uh, you see a roadblock, you see something that's not, uh, not transferring. So then you kind of assess it. Um, you might work on it for a little bit you, and then you, you continue to progress. And then eventually you're getting those kids that jump a certain distance off 12 and then they jump further off 14 and further off 16 and further off 20. And you don't just stop at 12. I mean, how many athletes have you ever seen that have huge 12 step jumps, but they don't increase a lot when they get to 20. It's very common. And some of it's not training related. Some of it's not coaching error, but your ceiling is what it is. Right, an athlete's ability to jump off of twelve step at that particular ground contact time with that amount of eccentric force with that amount of velocity 
sometimes, you know, they're reaching their ceiling there and maybe they need a 16 step, right? It's, you know, not everybody is going to optimize a 20 step, you know, if the, if the world's elite are jumping off 21, 23, that, that doesn't mean everybody can jump off that. Right. So you're always trying to utilize the most velocity that you can, but, um, you got to, at some point you got to recognize genetics play a huge role and and just a a person's ceiling overrides the ability to coach, right? The ability to program, right? The best coach in the world cannot make everybody an 820 long jumper. The best program in the world, right? So you look at all those factors and then you figure out what the goal is for that individual. And then you, you, you work towards that. So, I mean, kind of to go back to the question, I mean, the progression is really important. Um, providing there's a purpose for that progression and providing that you're seeing what you want to see with that progression. And if not, then you have to look at why. Um, But it all, everything in programming comes back to the first question that you asked, like what are the demands of the event? What are the demands of, uh, um, of of different aspects, you know, genetics and training demands and uh, expression demands of the event. And, you, you're always touching on, you're always looking at that and you're always saying, you know, is this box checked? Is this box checked? Is this transferring to that? Do I need to focus a little bit more on this? Um, where is there a, a, an error? Where is the kink in the chain, so to speak? And, um, you know, it's not always easy to figure out and it's not always easy to fix, but uh, that's coaching, right? And that's where you have to change certain aspects of the program. And, and again, it's not always, it's not always possible. You, you're not, not everybody can jump eight meters. Not everybody can jump 17. It's just not the way it is. Yeah. I remember a quote that you said on it. You probably alluded to it already here, but it was rather that there are many roads to 750, but there are very few that don't entail speed to eight meters. And I think that was actually during the summer where I began to kind of time more of my splits throughout the last 10 meters. And I had pretty good foundational strength built. We were kind of at that period of, the coronavirus where we didn't really know what was going to happen. I certainly didn't know if I was going to have some track meets, but I started to essentially run recklessly through the board and apply force. And it was funny how um, this is a big learning curve for me personally, was that with intent of taking off at high speeds at the board, I actually, my body began to adapt and like overcome the inertia that was too much to handle in the beginning or generate a decent takeoff. And it was kind of a relationship that was developed through um, intentional practice. And it was very cool to kind of see. And that's probably another topic altogether. And one end of the more specific scale that you're trying to enhance as you get closer to competition. But it's just interesting as well. I think you allude to, I've seen a lot of like short and stocky kind of guys who are very, very strong can jump great off 12 and then minimal improvement as they extend out. And that, yeah, I think that's a realistic way to look at it is, and it's, it's, it might sound rather uh, pessimistic, but it's, it's, it's a a factor that you as a coach have seen obviously take place. And that mightn't be through your own athletes, but just, you know, as an assessment from a variety of characteristics, you know, about a given athlete, you can see that, you know, sometimes you're just limited in certain aspects. And I think, you know, it also, it's like, I get a question a lot and, about, you know, you're, you're obviously trying to go to the Olympics and stuff like that. And it's just like, when you kind of learn about long jump from just listening to the people like yourself talk, you have to think of it on a deeper level. And I, for one, I'm thinking about my own personal progress and know that there's a ceiling, right? A ceiling that I do not have, I'm not blessed with 
huge elastic qualities. And I, I've learned that because I've always tried my best. Like I've always given it a hundred percent and tried to get better in every aspect that I can. And certain things have progressed and taught me a lot about myself and certain things have not. And as a result, I've began to realize what type of alley I am, strengths and weaknesses and where the areas are to be developed if I'm to get the most out of myself, you know, and I think that's very, um, the real aspect of coaching that, yeah, as I said, some choose to ignore and the best coaches in the world can't even uh, eradicate or make better for you uh, in the sense of if you're touching on those uh, ceilings as you have a high training age and, you know, you've been exposed to the variety of elements that, you know, training uh, often exposes and you just can't uh, seem to make that massive increase that you think is magically uh, going to come one day when you wake out of bed and it's just not really the, it's the harsh truth, I would suppose. But um, nevertheless, it's, it's, a, it's a fun journey to embark upon because you learn, you're constantly learning and you have other ways to kind of transfer that information. So from your assessment, at least, and experimenting with your own concept, you've said that, you know, personally, you've never had a someone take bad to the max strength training. You're someone who likes to keep in touch with it pretty much all year round. I think that might be accurate to say. And if so, do you feel that's perhaps an area where other coaches have kind of gone wrong with at least their application of max strength and why they don't see the utility in it as much as you maybe do? Or what do you think the, the, the pitfalls are perhaps of people veering away from this uh, philosophy, so to speak, or the uh, appreciation for its, its, its application, I guess? Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really good question. I think it is pretty common now that uh, the majority of coaches will emphasize, you know, certainly within the weight room, max strength development during the fall, right? Yeah. It's, I think a lot of people will accept get stronger in the squat, get stronger in the clean, get, you know, or the pull, get stronger in the lunge or step up. And, you know, for the, for the, for the most part, you get stronger in those events and your performance will improve providing the rest of the program is good. I think a lot of people accept that. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, how do you, what do you do during the season? Right. Because it's just such a, such an old school mindset in my opinion that, okay, well, you don't want to lift heavy during the, during the season because, you know, it, the time frames of lifting heavy are so different than what you do during the event. Um, but I think it goes back to understanding why you're lifting heavy in the first place. What does max strength do? You know, what is, what's the advantage of being strong, number one? And then what is the advantage of developing strength? Because the two are different, right? You know, the... Um, recruitment aspect of of lifting with max intent and max um intensity right max max weight um fiber tight recruitment um the the um the the benefit of lifting at full range of motion in terms of fiber recruitments and, and nervous system activation and things like that all of those benefits directly influence your ability to produce force quicker Right. Again, we kind of went back to the same thing we said before, but sure. how big that impulse is, is going to determine the amount of that impulse that you're able to generate at speed. Right. So you may not use the entire impulse, but it's relative. So the amount of the impulse that you're going to use at speed is relative to the max size of that impulse. So um, when you stop developing that, 
you, uh, of course, that impulse is going to decrease in size. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, it's a, it's an unnecessary um, part of, of a lot of people's programs when they stop developing max strength during the season, it's an unnecessary result. And um, I say it's unnecessary because, you know, it's not hard to, to, to maintain uh, high levels of max strength. Very, very easy. You don't need to do a lot of work for it. And I found every single year without fail, when you touch on it every 10 to 14 days, small sessions, mainly we do it through complexes, which uh, kind of touches on the specificity aspect. Complex training is a really great way of, of, of touching on max strength quote safely because immediately you're expressing you know fast force right so the transference is what you want in season perhaps yeah so we use complexes a lot for that during the season and again it's every couple of weeks where we touch on static lifts deep squat max weight to you know not necessarily to failure but to close to failure but we're immediately performing hurdle hops or, or, or horizontal bounds at high speeds, or even we do a lot of assisted. So you're talking about complete opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got a very, very heavy quarter squat, you know, four or 500 pounds for somebody like Thomas, followed by assisted jumps with 0 0.05, 0 0.06 contacts. That complex, you know, it's such a safe and specific way of maintaining max strength. Right. Um, Kind of works in the relationship too on what you're going to see in the event, right? Is that you're going to demand both of those things in a very yeah. short time space. Correct. And, and psycho, I mean, I, I talk about psychology a lot. I provide reasoning for a lot of my training thoughts based on psychology and just the intent that comes with lifting a max squat, bracing your entire body, you know, pretty much holding your breath and, and that level of focus that is required when you have a 600 pound quarter squat and you need to protect your back and your, your, you know, your stomach and everything else, that level of focus, that level of intent, that level of just awareness in the moment, it's, it's incredible. It transfers to everything else that they do. And it's, it's just that foundation. It's just the anchor. I mean, I, I just don't, uh, I don't quite understand programs that don't, don't treat it as such, right? It's the, it's the foundation of the pyramid, really essential. Um, and because of the, 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 the massive intensity that comes from competition and, you know, obviously at that point of the year during the spring, the, the specificity of training is so high that the intensity levels are so high, the intent, the desire to perform, competition environment, all that stuff, it all links together and... I would say 80 to 90% of the time, 10 days out from major peak, the athlete has performed a PR in the squat and clean. So go, go figure, right? You spend nine weeks during the fall emphasizing max strength. When I say that, I mean two out of the three sessions are pretty heavy. You're never, you're never um, taking out 90% cleans. I never, ever take out 90% cleans during the spring. It's every single week. Every two weeks, you're putting in a static lift, deep squat, quarter squat, parallel squat, and you're doing very heavy contrast with step back lunge. 
and then speed lunge, split, split jump, etc. That's it. Every two weeks. And then six weeks, eight weeks later, depending on how the season is, you do your, your 10 days out, you do your super high load day, 10 days before taper, you know, 10 days before the, before the peak meet. Yeah. 80 to 90% of the time kids are PR'd. And it's the cumulative effect of intensity, psychology of competition and specificity. And it, it, it adds together. And, and if that doesn't tell you alone the, the transfer of all aspects of training, nothing, nothing will. Right. So it's, it's a, it's just a great thing. I mean, you know, and then often we've had, we've had, um, you know, I've had, when, when Thomas and Ernie for, for particular um, PR at nationals, which not many athletes PR at nationals, it's, it's uh, especially in the, in the jumping events, it's, it's not that common um, across the board. They've PR'd in the clean the week of nationals. You know, they've just been so ready, nervous, nervous system wise. They're so wired. They're so excited. They're, they're, they're fully fresh and ready to go. And their mind is on nothing but max impulse, you know, max intent. And, um, yeah, they've PR'd in the clean and it's, uh, it gives them so much confidence and they're, they're excited and they understand the transfer. And it's, again, it's one aspect of the program that transfers to every other and every other aspects of the program transfer to that. And, yes. uh, it's, it's the, the circle, um, uh, you know, of connected components that, that make the program successful. Um, and again, it's the emphasis, the emphasis is always on the driving aspect of that particular individual. That's awesome. And it's funny, I and personally I've benefited, I've got PRs off the, the back of a taper where it entailed maybe a deep front squat for me a few years ago. Also, um, yeah, hand clean PRs, something that I've had twice uh, that have led to actual PRs in the track. So I can attest to that and that might be just because I'm a particular type of athlete, but for you, you can say that you've got it off a, a, a wide range of uh, variety. And I think when you, when you talk about uh, Thomas and Eric is your other athlete, correct? Ernie. Ernie, Ernie. Well, those are two very different um, just from watching your, your Twitter page for a long time. Like those are one is high elastic qualities. You could argue the other one's just so strong, like brutish strength. And it's obviously he has eccentric, like ex- good elasticity too, but I, would I be correct in saying that his primary driver would be this, the force element? A hundred percent. And again, he, his, um, his reactive numbers testing wise are phenomenal, but the biggest influence to that is his strength. Whereas the biggest influence to Ernie's reactive ability is his tendon abilities, his, yeah. his actual elasticity. Right? So again, you've got your high velocity, expression and you've got your low velocity expression and they both need to work together. Thomas's impulse is so huge that it can override some of his deficiencies, elastic, mm-hmm. elastic. Ernie's impulse is um, perhaps not as huge, but because his elastic quality is so amazing and he produces it in such force, he can utilize more speed relative um, and, and everything else that goes with him, right? Like he's tall, he's got very long legs, he's very light. You know, like I said, there's a whole host of genetic factors that determine performance. And he chose the right, the right event, right? So, you know, high jump. So it's, um, 
it, it all, it all, like I said, it all works together. And, you know, Dan Paff said to me uh, a while back that the best validation of a program or, or, or a training system is when you look at across the board improvements of all levels of talent. Okay. From a 17 foot jumper that jumped 19 and just doesn't have a lot of qualities to, to jump much further to somebody who's world-class jumping 230 to somebody who's jumping 17 to somebody who, you know, should never really jump six foot and then they jump six foot. So, you know, you, you, across the board, our athletes improving based on a, a philosophy or a system, all levels of talent, all levels of experience, all variations of driving factors. If you can say 90% of your athletes are improving, something's, something's working. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think anyone would disagree with that statement at all. I think well, I'm, not, I'm not even, I'm not even necessarily you know, talking about me. I'm just saying that. that yeah, that's, sure. That's a validation in itself. It, yeah. It's just, I mean, and like I said, there are many, or like you said too, there are many ways to do this. Mm-hmm. There are, there are, I'm, I'm never going to say that uh, anyone's program is better than somebody else's. It's, it's about, uh, it's about looking at your individuals and doing the best you can with them. And there's so many ways to jump um, or, or at least to optimize performance. That's all we want to do, right? We just want to help athletes achieve their potential. Absolutely. It's not about, it's really, uh, it's made to seem like it's about the highest level of the sport, but coaching is not about that. You know, coaching is about just helping an individual reach their potential. Yeah. And how can it be? There's too many things to focus on with it, with it being folk, but deterring it to, you know, the Olympics or, you know, focusing on something that quite frankly, you can't control. Like you have so much time periods to manage throughout the year from a, a weekly basis, daily basis and, and, and monthly and so on that the bigger picture is really just, no, it's 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 not controllable, but those those each of those moments are, and so you're selecting the the energy to be put into those aspects more than anything else. And it's just kind of a rather sexy way of saying like, oh, the Olympics and 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 these big fancy championships. But ultimately, the moment that you keep looking at the the long term picture, the the moment you're is when you've lost focus on what's in front of you. And I think, um, yeah, and you know, the, there's so many great coaches that don't have the opportunity to work with the highest level of talent and, and that's really unfortunate and so you, you can't make it about the highest level of kids right exactly that's that's just not what the sport is it's really not i mean it, it looks great but it's um when you get yourself in a position to where you only work with the highest level talent you're incredibly blessed and great you should be very grateful because it's it's super rare and um, unfortunately, like I said, there are so many great coaches that just don't have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll take a little bit of time. I think we've beat the drum pretty hard on, or, or you have, and given a lot of gr- great information, food for thought for the listeners at home. But let's take some time to discuss your second book, which you've been working on tirelessly uh, since May, since the lockdown you alluded to. That is coming off the back of your first edition that you released many years ago as an athlete. Tell us a little bit about what you have in store for that and, and how it all kind of evolved for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of go back to, to 2012. I was getting my, I was at Cal state Fullerton. I was getting my master's in um, human performance 
And um, I, I didn't want to do a, a, project, a, um, a thesis for my master's. I wanted to do a project. I, I just felt like something tangible that could help others would be, you know, uh, more beneficial for everybody. And when I was, when I was coaching myself and I, when I was at Manhattan as well, I was kind of learning more. I, th at the time, there was just no resources that were specific to the jumps that, you know, not, there was obviously some books and, but it just wasn't, it wasn't detailed enough. It wasn't specific. It wasn't, uh, I struggled with limited knowledge back then. I struggled to, um, to understand what I was reading and to understand how to transfer it to what I was trying to do. And it was really frustrating. And by the time I got to, uh, to, to doing my master's, I, I was like, man, I really just, I want to help a lot of other people. I want to, I want to put something out there that can help. And my knowledge at the time was limited. I was an athlete. I had had some good experiences. I had some mentors, but not to the level I do now. And I had a passion of, you know, long jump and, um, and it all just kind of worked together to where I could use it for my project, for my master's. So I, I put together a manual at the time and, and, and it was a pretty rough manual and I, it worked for my masters and, you know, it, and I spent the next two years after that putting it into a book. And at the time, you know, the book was relatively high level for me at the time. And I, I but I tried to keep it very simple because I was really targeting uh, athletes as well, like me at the time who might coach themselves and um, who needed something specific to, to the jumps. So I put that together and, and yeah, it's been out since 2012 and, and, it's been it's been very helpful. I I've received a lot of cool um, feedback from it, and met so many coaches across the way that have that have helped that it's helped with and uh, helped for. And um, so then you know years pass, right? I, I get in the NCA. I'm at Cal. I'm now at USC, and COVID happens. Lockdown happens. I had a rough draft done for the new book. I knew I was going to write a new book. I was thinking ten years apart might be a decent. <laughs> decent uh, time frame to, to put something together. Um, I had a rough draft done of the contents, but I, I really didn't work on it. I was working on other things and COVID happened and I was encouraged by a couple of close people to, to start doing this. And um, I had some other things going on in my life that allowed me more time and, and allowed me to, to really focus on it. And just, I've uh, been doing it since May every day for hours. I can't even imagine how many hours. And it's grown into um, basically a book that discusses every single possible thing that I believe in, my philosophy, my what I've learned over the years, the entire system that I use that's been pretty stable for the past couple of years. Um, I, I, it's going to end up probably being close to 500 pages. Um, and it's, it's, um, I'm looking for this, you know, I'm looking for it to be the most comprehensive resource, you know, in one book and I may not write another one. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of going all in on this and uh, I have some great people next to me helping me with this. And, uh, I just have some of the best mentors in the world. And, uh, and, and yeah, it's going to be about 14 chapters. It, it discusses everything from talent identification to um, you know, testing battery to sports science principles to training design, training components, uh, obviously fully periodized programs, uh, sports psychology, physical therapy. It's, 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 um, 
maybe the only thing it's not going to have is anything about nutrition and, and diet, which I, you know, again, it's just, there's many other resources for that and it's not my area. Um, but yeah, it's going to be fully comprehensive and, and, uh, uh, long triple and high jump. So, okay, it, nice. uh, so high jump is a, is a major aspect of this book. Um, everything from technique to technical development to, you know, biomechanics to, you know, all sorts. So, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think it's probably about three or four months away from being complete. Um, and then we need, it, it's going to have professional formatting and, and, you know, it's quite, it's going to be extremely different from the first, from the first one in, in every way. Honestly, it's a complete rewrite. It's not, I, I have not taken any of the first book and elaborated it. It's literally brand new from the start. So, um, yeah, I'm excited, man. It's, uh, it's been the project of a lifetime. And it's just grown into a monster that uh, I can't stop now until it's finished. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you've developed some kind of portfolio of variety of aspects that have gone, coincided with your experience as a coach and as an athlete and everything that's led to this moment. I'm excited to, to read it myself. I had my roommate actually buy a copy of your first book. So we have two copies in the in the house right now here of the original. So I'd say there'll be another two coming very soon uh, when you do release. But obviously there is a lot um, of, as you said, tailoring down and then formatting to come, which takes its own time, of course. But I'm sure I think there's a a lot of messages that that preaches and one being, you know, using the coronavirus as an opportunity to kind of, you know, focus on other aspects of your life that perhaps in the day-to-day hustle and bustle of coaching at a NCAA D1 institution is is uh, very busy in and of itself. And so you probably wouldn't have got the, the time had you had the, spent all the face-to-face interaction hours uh, at USC and so on. So it's kind of a, a blessing in disguise, I guess. And uh, I'm sure many jumps coaches in the community are going to um, relish the release of that one. So Nick, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge uh, with myself and the listeners of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. It's been a huge privilege for me in my third episode to have someone of your knowledge uh, come on here and educate everyone on your philosophy and share your insights. I certainly look forward to perhaps having you back again to discuss another topic. This was, if you're, if I'm correct in saying your first podcast you've ever done. Yeah, I've never done a, um, I'm, I'm so much more of a writer and a small, uh, small group discussion, you know, on the, I coaches call all the time and we, we talk about training, but I, uh, I've never done a training related podcast before. So you're, 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 I've known you for many years and we've chatted a lot about training, um, but never actually spoke. So I was, uh, it's your first, you know, this is your new, your new thing. So I wanted to support you and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's not necessarily my thing, but I'm glad that I uh, was able to be on yours. I appreciate that, Nick. Well, I think many of the listeners will disagree with your statements about it not being your thing. It absolutely was so, so enjoyable to listen to you talk. And I think I was painting mental images and the curious person in me was just getting all sorts of ideas as I listened to you talk. And, um, you know, I think many will uh, begin to transcribe some of your thoughts there for their own uh, personal coaching application and so i will conclude the episode by thanking you again for joining us and for those who are listening at home i hope you enjoyed it Uh, feedback is always welcome here as i uh, continue to pursue this endeavor of my own and uh, i hope it 
delivers on its primary goal, which is to uh, educate the track and field community and enable track and field performance. So until next time, guys, thank you very much for joining and take care. Thank you. Appreciate it.